Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Many of you in the audience don't need to be uh, subjected to yet another introduction because you were with us over Shabbos for the beautiful Torah of Rav Alnon Bazak. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'd like to express my gratitude to Rav Bazak for a really, really wonderful Shabbos uh, that we all gained from. And Emir um, Hashem, this is a, a beautiful way to top off that Shabbos. I want to thank um, Adina and Ezra Dykman and Dr. Mark Singer for their sponsorship of the entire weekend. I want to thank Larry and Dina Rabinovich um, for their gracious hospitality uh, of last night's Oneg and today's luncheon and so many other things. Um, and I just want to say one word about each of our panelists and certainly about the subject for this evening and then leave the rest to them. Each one will speak as long as each one wants to speak. That's, uh, that's not unlimited license. And, and then uh, we'll have some time for questions. Um, you've heard over the weekend many things about Rav Bazak, um, some of them even true. You've heard about uh, the wonderful relationship that he has with his Talmidim. You've heard about his Sfarim, his approach to Pshuto Shal Mikra, uh, his wonderful manner of teaching, and how easy it is to listen to his Tivrei Torah, um, the volumes that he has written and edited, and those that are forthcoming, God willing, from Koran publishers. Um, you have to uh, go some to be able to be on a panel uh, of uh, with Rav Bazak and our other panelists uh, have gone some in order to be able to do that. I must tell you that the reason why I even thought of this panel I think was a, a, a passage in the Hespeid that Rav Bazak wrote concerning Rav Amital in which he thanked <coughs> Rav Amital for such beautiful things the way a Talmud would thank his Rebbe uh, for enabling him to deal with the weaknesses of human beings, for calming him down. You'll mention all of that. <laughs> you can find it on the Gush website. But I thought that each one of the, of the clauses, each one of the phrases in that Hesped uh, deserved an elaboration of an hour or so. So uh, we're not going to get the full elaboration tonight, but we'll get some of it. Um, I'm honored to have known the, the Landis family uh, through our affiliation with the SAR Academy and to have had the chance to teach some of their children and to have had one of them as a classmate of my son and also a co-boguer of Gush along with my son Yair. Um, the Landis, over the course of the years, have become very involved with Yeshivat Haratzion and were the honorees at last year's uh, Haratzion dinner. And um, the reason why I thought of, of uh, David for this evening's panel is because he has spoken eloquently and, and touchingly about Rav Amital in other forums and I was hoping that he would duplicate that here specifically in certain areas that he is able to address that, that others may not be as, as acquainted with. Um, and then Rabbi Ryan is a story in and of himself. Rabbi Ryan is 
has been a model before me for uh, quite a few years. When I was a, a freshman in Yeshiva University High School, he was a freshman Rebbe in Yeshiva University High School. And since then, he has founded one yeshiva, served as a principal in another yeshiva, taught in many places and formally and informally. For the last decade, he has been at Yeshivat Haratzion, being a personage of warmth, a mashkiach ruchani, and just um, somehow manages to find his way into the hearts of so many Talmidim. Um, and I'm now a fan for life, because uh, truth be told, uh, we had a third panelist that was basically lined up, and he came to me last week and said, about a week ago, and said uh, that he can't do it, he has a conflict. So who do you ask on that type of notice? Well, a week's notice is too much for Rabbi Ryan. Uh, so I, I got his phone number, and I was told, oh, he just left, he's landing on Thursday morning, here's his phone number. <laughs> I called him on Thursday morning, and he, you know, anybody else would have said, Bukavadik, you ask somebody on Thursday morning to speak out, do you know that I have a Shabbaton that is taking place in NYU? And I, you know, there is such a thing as jet lag, and not, not a word, not a whimper. Um, <laughs> you'll hear the whimpers later. Um, but I, I am personally grateful, and our program is grateful, and it will be greatly enriched by your presence. And now the people that... These people are here because of the looming and towering presence that Rabbi Yehuda Amital Zatzal was in their life. A man who could encompass a philosophy with a few words, as Rabbi Bazak mentioned last night, and who uh, touched those who were at the yeshiva and those who weren't. When I was at a dinner, uh, there are very few dinners that I enjoy going to, but Gush is one of those dinners and when I was at a dinner, um, and uh, I think he was about 80 at the time, I felt I had to go over to him and say, you don't know me, you know, but I know you, and I've been so influenced by what you've written, it is so normal, it has helped me so much, you know, and uh, I don't really remember, you know, he just responded, you know, nodding and smiling like you do when somebody gushes over you. But that's the sort of influence that he's had over people at a distance. Imagine over the people uh, who knew him up close. And it's uh, an honor to have uh, three such people here this evening um, who will speak to us on various aspects of the legacy. Mishnato, Shel Harav, Amital, Zecher, Tzadik, Levracha. For decades, Avamital Zetzal served as a Shliach Tzibur on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. One of the most memorable sections of the Tfila was in the Chazarat Hashats of Musaf of Rosh Hashanah. When Avamital began the Zichronot blessing, he would chant the section with a special melody, and then, in a most surprising manner, he would recite a pair of words twice. 
אשרי איש שלא ישכחך ובן אדם, ובן אדם יתאמץ בך. Why did Rav Amital recite the words "Uven Adam" twice, a practice that is not universally accepted during Chazarat Hashatz? I never heard him explicitly relate to this to the manner, but in light of what I knew about Rav Amital and his conceptual teachings, there was no need to ask him about it. A simple explanation was his conceptual approach to the issue of men, which I shall try to clarify at this opportunity. When I am asked what is the most important thing that I learned from Rav Amital, I reply with a, bl- a brief answer, the legitimacy to be a human being with all of man's complexities. Before I arrived in the yeshiva, this was a very difficult <coughs> issue for me. The rabbinic figures whom I had met in the yeshiva high school where I had previously studied taught us that someone who truly wishes to serve God must totally cut himself off from this world. A true scholar is someone who overpowers all his passions, rises above all his weaknesses, and all his life enjoys the splendor of the Shekhinah. This model that stood before my eyes was a great challenge. There was something very attractive and exciting about this ideal. But as I grew up and understood that I could never stand up to such expectations, I almost despaired of the aspiration to serve God in a serious manner and thought that I would have to direct myself to a life of mediocre religiosity which is not really connected to the true ideal. My encounter with Vamital in particular and with the approach of Yeshivat Harazion in general was for me a great surprise. I didn't immediately understand intellectually what I was absorbing from the atmosphere in the Yeshiva But little by little, I grasped the new message. No longer was I presented with an ideal that was detached from reality, but with a recognition of the human, of the human dimensions of man. No longer disregard and repression of the human side of man with all its defi- defi- deficiencies and passions, but rather recognition of all these aspects of man and understanding that one cannot totally overcome them. No longer a pessimistic attitude toward men who all his life stumbles because of his passions, but rather an optimistic attitude toward men who, despite all his weaknesses, succeeds in reaching moments, even if only isolated ones, of feelings of affiliation and closeness to Hashem. <coughs> It should be emphasized that this message didn't stem from an inclination toward compromise Or restriction of aspirations. Ovamital certainly demand, demanded of his students that they invest themselves and toil in Torah day after day in a systematic and orderly manner. But Ovamital was big enough to recognize the smallness of men. He strove to find the balance between realistic aspirations which are likely to advance a person and recognition of reality according to which observe <coughs> oversized aspirations are liable to lead to dishonesty and frustration. Avamital would often cite the well-known comment of the Kotzke Rebbe on the verse, Ve'anshei Kodesh Tihiyun Li. And you shall be... <coughs> um, excuse me...
be a holy man to me. That God said, as it were, I have plenty of angels, but I'm looking for Anshay Kodesh, for human beings who will be holy men. Based on this outlook, Avamital argued in his book, Jewish Values in a Changed World, as follows. There has been a tendency in recent years to idealize great rabbis to the point of total disregard of their human feelings and weaknesses. The Torah presents the opposite approach. Every person has a human side, which must not be denied. Even the prophets had doubts and difficulties. The Torah recognizes that man lives in this world and has no expectation that he behave as if he were living in an ideal and unreal universe. This approach found expression in many realms and in different variations, and its impact was immense. It presented the students with a human challenge that one could stand up to with inner truth and integrity. Let me go back to the Yamim Nuraim and Rav Amital's unforgettable talks prayer to Tfilat Neila. I remember that one year, Rav Amital was, adjust, was just about finished with the, his talk, uh, and he had already began moving away when he returned to the Bima and added, One more thing. Karov Hashem lechol korav, lechol asher ikreu be'emet. Ktsat emet yesh banu achshav. At this moment, there is a little sincerity within us. For a moment, I was troubled. Yom Kippur is the climax of a process that had begun on Rosh Chodesh Elul. Almost the entire day had been spent in prayer, and all that Rav Amital had to say was that we have reached Ktsat Emet, a little sincerity, but I immediately came back to my senses and understood the deep meaning of his words. Rav Amital was telling us, don't worry if you are unable to truly concentrate on each and every word. Don't concern yourselves with the question whether you are totally sincere. Content yourselves with the fact that there is a little sincerity within you. Ktsat emet. Look at the positive side. And from there, you will be able to reach spiritual strength in your tefillat nila. In his later years, Avamital would repeat a certain story at almost every yeshiva-wide tish. He would tell us that he had once said in the yeshiva, Ani adam pashut, ani ohev kavod. I am a simple person. I lack honor. After some time had passed, one of the yeshiva students from South Africa approached him and asked, Why do you say that you like honor? Surely it is forbidden to chase after honor. Avamital explained to him that he was a human being, and every human being likes honor. But the, students, but the student had difficulty accepting his answer. <coughs> At some later point, reported Avamital, he was invited to a farewell party for the South African students who were about to leave the yeshiva. At that party, that same student stood up, shared a Dvar Torah, and in the end he said, And now, at the end of my year in the yeshiva, I can Baruch Hashem say that I too like honor. <laughs> Rabbi Mital took great pleasure from this story, but I frequently noticed that the student didn't fully understand his position on that matter. At one of the teachers, I stood up and asked permission to explain the meaning of the story. I first emphasized that Rav Amital avoided external expression of honor. 
expressions of honor. For example, in his local Bet Knesset in Givat Mordechai, he sat in an ordinary seat, and so too when he prayed in Alon Shvut, he was very careful to sit in one of the back rows. On one occasion, however, Avamital spoke about the difference between external honor and honor in the true sense of the word. He noted that students had come to him and told him that they had tried to arrange a meeting with a secular school right after Rabin was murdered, and they were welcomed only after the school understood that they were students of Ravamital. This is the honor, that feeling of satisfaction, that no human being can say that he is indifferent to it. When Ravamital said that he likes honor, he was referring to honor of this sort. After this introduction, I must add what may be self-evident. When Ramital said that he likes honor, he was teaching his students a fundamental lesson. I am a human being. I am not an angel. I do not try to wrap myself in a clock of false modesty. And you too, do not try to repress natural feelings and create artificial responses to the real world. I know of no more humble statement than Ravamital's Aniohev Kavod. The truth is that Ravamital saw himself as continuing in the path of Chazal on this issue, and he pointed to many sources where the Tanaim and Amoraim conducted themselves in this, mer- in this very manner. Let me briefly mention one, one example that Ravamital would often bring. The Gemara cites the words of Ramban Yochanan ben Zakai to his students when he blessed them shortly before he died. אמר להם, יהי רצון שתהם מורה שמיים עליכם כמורה בשר ודם. May it be God's will that the fear of heaven shall be upon you like the fear of flesh and blood. The student said to him, is that all? So he said to them, ולוואי, תדעו, כשאדם עובר עבירה, אומר שלא יראני אדם. If only you can attain this, you can see how important this is, for when a person wants to commit an avera, he says, I hope no man will sin. Ravamital argued as follows. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai's students thought that the standard for fearing heaven should be raised. Their master taught them, however, that while from an ideological perspective they are certainly right, practically speaking, it should be recognized that it is in human nature to experience the fear of flesh and blood in a much more tangible manner. We should be very happy to reach a similar level of fear of heaven. This educational approach of Ravamital had a great impact of the development of the study of Tanakh in Yeshivat Haaretzion. As is well known, the Yeshiva gave rise to a process which had merited the name the Tanakh Revolution a return to the study of the plain sense of Tanakh. Over the years, the yeshiva's approach has grown and developed. Avamital himself was not involved in teaching Tanakh, but it seems to me that the yeshiva's entire approach to Tanakh study would not have been, have been have developed without him. The return to study of the plain sense of Tanakh immediately stirs up the question how we are to relate to the complexity of many biblical heroes. Indeed, various schools of thought that attacked the yeshiva's approach to the Tanakh study argued that studying the Bible in its plain sense 
diminishes the figures of our forefathers when it presents them as human beings who occasionally error, who sometimes even sin, like ordinary people. It seems that Rav Amital's position was one that categorically rejected this position. Do we wish to see artificial, angelic figures who neither err nor sin? What do such figures have to offer us? Should we falsify the plain sense of Tanakh in order to create unrealistic characters? Or perhaps just the opposite? Based on an understanding of the complexity of biblical figures, we should adopt a, 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 we should adopt a different approach to life, which doesn't view human complexity as something essentially negative. The spiritual backing that Ramital gave to consideration of the human dimensions of man is what more than anything else made it possible to return to the plain sense of Tanakh and to make Tanakh more relevant than ever. <coughs> In this way, Ravamital also paved the way for repentance and repair. He stressed the fact that every person has weaknesses, every person is liable to stumble in sin, and therefore, the way of dealing with life is not to fall into despair and frustration about the past, but to concentrate on the positive outlook of the future. On the future. In addition, Avamital emphasized the importance of not dwelling excessively <coughs> on sin. One of the yeshiva's graduates, who serves today as a Rosh Yeshiva, recently related that when he was studying in the yeshiva, he and several of his friends decided to try to refrain as much as possible from seeing immodest sights. And therefore, <coughs> upon arriving in Yerushalayim, they would remove their glasses. <laughs> When Ramital heard about this phenomenon, he invited the group for a talk and said to them in these words, when a person walks about on the street and wears glasses, he sees everything around him, men, women, animals, street lamps, and the like. But if he removes his glasses out of a concern that he might come across an immodestly clad woman, the street fills up with immodestly clad women. <laughs> Every tree... Every street sign, every traffic light appeared to him from a distance like an immodestly club movement. <laughs> it goes without saying that Ramital was not lenient regarding problems of modesty, and it is precisely for this reason that his position gains considerable weight. The way to confront problems of this type is not to act in an entirely unnatural manner, based on an obsessive fear of falling into sin, because this approach will in the end lead to the very opposite result. The radical attempt to deal with the problem by way of obsessive thought about it will only blow up the problem to uncontrollable dimensions. Only a balanced perspective that recognizes the problem but refrains from exaggerating its power will allow for a more realistic confrontation with it. In general, Avamital opposed a heavy and downcast attitude toward the world and the phenomenon which he called Frumkat. Avamital emphasized the value of joy <coughs> in the Torah's connection to natural life. His greatness in Torah and his efforts to raise Torah scholars in no way contradicted his love of life itself, his sense of humor, and his simple and natural joy of life. This approach 
also influenced Ravamital's position concerning the education of children and students. He maintained that one should not make exaggerated demands of children in the wake of which they are liable to reach disappointment and discontent. On various occasions, he announced that he had raised his own children to be good balebatim and refrained at all costs from sending them the message that he expected them to become great Torah scholars. It is precisely by way of this human approach that we can produce children who will grow up in Torah without feeling external pressure upon them, which, is, which in the end is likely to lead to rejection and frustration. He said as follows. Encouraging achievement and excellence is indeed likely to lead to significant accomplishments. On the other hand, there is room for concern that excessive goading and unrealistic parental expectations from their children can engender frustration and tension. A person who grew up in such an, an atmosphere can never really be happy with his lot, and he will always see the half of the glass that is empty. Is it not preferable for a person to attain more modest achievements but enjoy emotional health rather than achieve greatness that is accompanied by feelings of frustration? It is precisely the absence of, dist of distinction that is likely to lead to great results. A talented person will usually grow even without the pressure and expectations that lead to arrogance and seclusion. In contrast, education that stresses excellence and elitism is liable to cause great frustration. Indeed, Ravamital merited to take pride in his son, Rav Yoel, his daughters, and his sons-in-law, important Torah scholars, and also from his students, who include some of the most important Rashi Yeshivot in the religious Zionist world. In conclusion, let us go back to our starting point. First of all, it seems that we have found the answer to the question why Ravamital repeated the words Uven Adam, Uven Adam. He wished to emphasize the fact that we are human beings, for better or worse, with all of our weaknesses and passions, as well as our abilities to rise and elevate ourselves. Human beings who are called upon to Lehit Ametzbah but also human beings such that God recognizes their weaknesses and doesn't load them with demands as if they were angels. I believe that more than anything else, the atmosphere that Ravamital created excuse me, in the Besmidosh of Yeshivat Haratzion surrounding this approach is what made it possible for me and for many others to aspire to grow in Avodat Hashem in the study of Torah without frustrations about what cannot be achieved and precisely because of that with strivings to attain what can be achieved. I wish to conclude with a few short words that I wrote as part of a Hespel for Aramital shortly after we were informed of his blessing at Wasmig mentioned before. Thank you, Mori Barabi. Thank you for fascinating my spiritual words, for the legitimization that you gave me to be myself, 
for calming me down at difficult moments, for teaching me not to become alarmed by human weaknesses. You taught me to view my routine, daily learning, as being of chief importance. You explained to me that the, mo- that the most sublime experiences find expression in the routine. You moved me with your prayer and talks. You gladdened me with your stories. And you planted within me the tools to deal with me with different situations in life. Your image will continue to accompany me every moment of my life. And I will never cease to hear your voice echoing in my head. Rabbi Rosenberg asked that I address Rabbi Mittal's perspectives on the Shoah, as well as his involvement in national politics. Rabbi Mittal did not write extended programmatic or analytic works setting forth his theology or political philosophy. His thought was expressed through Sichot and Shiurim delivered to his Talmidim, and in his life, the actions and stands he took as a religious leader and public figure. With respect to Rav Mittal, it is impossible to separate the thought from the man, the ideas from the life. Any discussion of Rav Mittal's thought and views must begin with his biography and his personality. Yehuda Klein, Rav Mittal's original name, was born in 1924 in Grossvarden, Hungary. Grossvarden was then the second largest Jewish community in Hungary with 30,000 Jews, a third of the city's total population. Young Yehuda studied Torah and Kleder at the age of 14, was among a small group of students who formed the nucleus of a new yeshiva started by Rav Chaim Yehuda Levi. The four years that Yehuda Klein spent in Rav Levi's yeshiva coincided with the first years of the Second World War. The Germans reached Hungary in March 1944, and Yehuda was soon sent to a labor camp, while his parents and siblings were later sent to Auschwitz and Mauthausen, where they perished. In the small sack of belongings that he packed in the ghetto before leaving for the labor camp, he included some sforim, a Tanakh, a Mishnayis, and a small book of essays of Rav Kook. Yehuda managed to survive the extreme difficulties of life in the labor camp, and after the war made his way to Romania, and from there to Palestine, where he arrived in Hanukkah at the end of 1944, the sole survivor of his immediate family. Rejecting an offer to work in his uncle's business, he went to learn in the Hebron Yeshiva. He was a Talmud at the Hebron Yeshiva, but he made it very clear to his Russia Yeshiva that he was not looking to them for spiritual direction. When they asked him what sustained him spiritually during the Holocaust, what gave him the strength to survive the labor camps, he told them that it was a small book of writings of Rav Kook that he always had with him. When the War of Independence broke out, Rav Mittal was learning and teaching a Pardes Chana at the Yeshiva of his father-in-law, Rav Yehuda, Rav Yehuda Meltzer, the son of Rav Isra Zalman Meltzer. Rav Mital left the base Medrash, joined the Haganah, and fought in Latrun and in the Galil. 
At that time, the new Israeli army had not yet as made any had not as yet made any provision for the needs of the religious soldier, and did not provide any support for the spiritual needs of soldiers more generally. Yudha Klein and other religious soldiers that gathered around him established a Beit in their base, and prevailed on the army administration to make some provision for the celebration of Shabbat. The Beit Knesset published a Torah journal in which Yudha Klein published an article under his new name Yehuda Amital. The name Amital was an allusion to a pasuk in Micha, where the Navi uses the metaphor of Tal, Du, for She'erit Yisrael, the remnant of Israel. The article was pathbreaking, an extended essay that set out the spiritual and halachic issues facing the religious soldier, for matters of kashrut and Shabbat, the issues regarding proper behavior in battle, including the proper treatment of bodies of dead soldiers as well as the dead and wounded of the enemy. Rav Mital always maintained that yeshiva students should serve in the army. He did not believe that learning provided an exemption from the obligation to serve, and he thought that if yeshiva students did not serve in the army, it would cause a terrible breach within Israeli society. And he was a faculty member of Yeshivat Hadarom in Rehovo, which was founded by his father-in-law. Rav Mital formulated the idea of the Yeshivat Hezder, a yeshiva that would combine regular yeshiva studies with service in the army. Rav Meltzer was able to get the necessary army and government approval for the first such program at Yeshivat HaDarom. After 10 years at Yeshivat HaDarom, Rav Mital decided that he needed a new challenge and moved to Jerusalem <coughs> with his family. Two years later, the Six-Day War broke out. For Rav Mital, the swift, decisive victory that followed, the terrible foreboding and profound pessimism that dominated Israel during the months preceding the war, the capture of East Jerusalem, the Harabayit, and Yudan Shomron was divine demonstration that we were living in the period of the Gehulah and that the final stages of the redemption may be at hand. It is with a sense of messianic expectation and exhilaration that Rav Mital answered the call to head the new yeshiva in Gush Etzion that was being established by Moshe Moshkovitz, who was a member of the original Masuot Yitzchak, one of the kibbutzim in Gush Etzion, that was destroyed by the Arab Legion during the War of Independence. The new yeshiva, Yeshiva Taratzion, was established as a Hezra yeshiva, combining yeshiva studies and army service in accordance with the model created by Rav Mital and Rav Meltzer at Yeshiva Tadorom. As every alumnus of Yeshiva Taratzion that was here today, as everyone who has learned at the yeshiva knows, the celebration at the yeshiva would not be complete without Rav Mital leading the yeshiva in the singing of Atahir Libenu, in his distinctive nigun. To serve God in truth, the Yaltachah Be'emet, was not just a catchy song or slogan for Rav Mital. It defined who he was and how he lived his life, his personality and character, as well as his theology, his educational philosophy, and his social and political initiatives. To serve God in truth was a task he set before himself every day of his life, and it involved a constant struggle to be honest with himself and others and to respond appropriately to the challenges and changing complexity of religious life in Israel today. Rabbi Tal was an intensely charismatic person. He had the ability to electrify crowds, knowing exactly how to raise them to ecstatic heights through his nigunim, nusach, and dance, or how to shake them to their core in his hichot and public addresses with the perfectly chosen phrase and message. On a personal, individual level, he was able to connect in a deep way with all types of people. Fellow Tamir Chachamim and Rosh Yeshiva, the Balibatim and the Shul, Givat Mordechai, military personnel of all ranks, 
from commanders to generals, politicians and prime ministers, Talmudim and parents, Tatiim and Chilonim, intellectuals and artists, Israelis and Jews in the Tfutzot. Charisma, especially in religious leaders, has become a dubious or suspect quality of late, and generally for good reason. Rabbi Tao's charisma, however, flowed not from a deviously fabricated persona, but from his authenticity. He hated in himself and others affectation and pretense. He believed quite strongly that in order to serve God in truth, one must be true to oneself. He was radically independent. He was unafraid to speak his mind and to call others to account. He felt beholden to no one. He would often say that he was not afraid of other rabbis. He was only afraid of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Just as he valued his own independence and considered it essential to serving God in truth, he valued independence in others as well, his colleagues, his students, and his opponents. Rabbi Tao's theological approach to the Shoah was characteristic of his personality, radically honest and resistant to simplistic, evasive, or self-deceptive explanations. He felt very strongly that anyone who did not recognize the Holocaust as the greatest tragedy to befall the to befall the Jewish people, greater even than the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, was engaging in its denial. He rejected conventional explanations offered by religious thinkers for the Shoah. He rejected the explanation advanced by some Haredi Rashi Yeshiva and Hasidic Rebbes that the Holocaust was a punishment inflicted by God for the sin of assimilation or for laxity in observance of halacha or for neglect of Torah study or as the Satna Rebbe and others claimed as a punishment for Zionism. He also recoiled from the notion advanced by some religious Zionists, most notably Rasfi Yehuda Kuk, that the Holocaust was a type of divinely wrought amputation, the cutting away of Galuti ways of thought and behavior that was necessary in order to facilitate the emergence of a healthy Jewish nation settled in its own land. These were abhorrent ideas to Rav Mital. I will quote his words. There is nothing in this world that can justify the deaths of hundreds of thousands of children. There is nothing in this world that can justify this. Not Medinat Yisrael, not the Mashiach, not the repentance of the Jewish people. There is nothing in this world that can justify this. He rejected talk of Hester Panim, as if it were possible to speak of God in human terms, that God could simply avert his eyes or avert his gaze. On the contrary, Rav Mital said that he distinctly saw God's hand in the Holocaust. The events were too abnormal, too unnatural, and illogical for them not to have been the work of God. But he could not understand what it meant. With respect to the Shoah, he ended up taking perhaps the most difficult theological position for a believing Jew. That God was responsible for the Shoah, but we can never understand why it happened or what it meant. He felt that this was the only honest response. He emerged from the war with his emunah intact, with a deep sense of God's terrible might and man's absolute dependence upon him. But he could no longer base his avodat Hashem on the concept of hakaratatov. After what he had witnessed, his service of God was to be ever founded on yura, fear and awe, but not on an acknowledgement of God's beneficence. He was also left with a deep sense of man's capacity for evil 
and the distinctiveness of the Jewish people. During the war, he said that he recited the bracha of Shalosani Goy with tremendous feeling, with a deeply felt but tragic sense that it was better to be among the slaughtered than to be among the brutal killers. It was not just that he survived the war with his Imunah intact. For Rav Mital, it seems, after the Shoah, there was no other choice but to have Imunah. Rav Mital would often relate the following story. After the Nazis invaded Hungary in 1944, he and his friends had heated discussions about what they should do. One Yoshua Hager, who was a nephew of the Vizhnitsa Rebbe, insisted that the best option was to flee to Romania. The young Yehuda Klein argued that there was no reason to think that they would be better off in Romania since the Nazis were there as well. He was also concerned that this plan was not feasible for most local Jews, including himself, who did not have the necessary funds or connections with Jews in Romania. He argued that they needed to prepare to die al-Kiddush Hashem. This had been the message of his Rebbe, Rav Levi, who himself was murdered by the Nazis. Hager indeed escaped to Romania with the physical and financial assistance of the Vizhnitzer Hasidim, who were located on the border. And from there, he made his way to Eretz Israel. Not long after Rav Mital reached Eretz Israel after the war, he visited the kibbutz at Kfar There, he encountered the same Hager, the nephew of the Vizhnitzer Sarebi, who was shocked, even outraged, to see Rav Mital alive. Is that you, Yehuda? You survived? You who told us to die, Al-Kiddush Hashem? After calming down a bit, Hager then asked somewhat sarcastically, Yehuda, are you still religious? Do you still believe? Rav Mital answered him, And if I didn't remain religious, if I ceased to believe, would any of the questions have been answered? If I were no longer religious, would anything be in any way more clear or, or understandable? On the occasion of a celebration at the yeshiva, the 40th anniversary of his, of his aliyah, Rav Mital spoke of his experience in the Shoah, and he confessed the terrible burden he carried throughout his life for having survived. <coughs> Millions perished in the Holocaust, and I was saved, he said, as he speculated openly as to its unfathomable meaning. Was it because Hashem singled him out, or was it just an accident? On the one hand, if he knew for certain that God singled him out, he felt that he could not have lived with the sense of obligation that knowledge would have produced. On the other hand, how deeply would he, would he have wanted to be chosen by God in that way? It was because of these haunting questions, Rav Mital explained, that he never had the inner strength to establish for himself, as many other survivors had done, an annual day of celebration for having survived the war. In that same talk, Rav Mital said, I am a simple, small person. But when I survived, I thought I needed to more than redouble my strength in order to fill the places of those who did not make it here. That gave me the courage to do things that were beyond my natural abilities. When he spoke of doing things that were beyond his natural abilities, one of the things he apparently had in mind was his having become a Rosh Hashiva. He used to say that he became a Rosh Hashiva in order to demonstrate that even a Yehudi Pashut, a Pashut Yid, can be a Rosh Hashiva. Just five years after the yeshiva was founded, his Talmudim were called to battle when the Yom Kippur War broke out in October 1973. Eight students of the yeshiva were killed in the war, and others were wounded, some severely. The yeshiva's losses were disproportionately heavy. The yeshiva had only 200 students at the time. Soon after the war broke out, Rav Mital told Rav Lichtenstein that he was giving him the keys to the yeshiva, 
that he could not function as a Rosh Hashiva while Talmidim were at the front and falling in battle. For the entire Zaman Choref winter session, a span of approximately six months, Rav Mital raced from one base to the next, from one military camp to another, on both fronts, from the Golan to the Egyptian side of the Suez Canal, to provide support and comfort to his students and to other soldiers. And he grieved and mourned with the parents and families of the students who fell, delivered Aspedim and Levias and Shloshims and visited the wounded. In the Hesped that Rav Lichtenstein gave for Rav Mital at the yeshiva, Rav Lichtenstein said that Rav Mital lived those six months in the state of Meito Mutal Lefanav, of a person whose immediate relative had just died. The experience of the war was traumatic for Rav Mital. He felt a deep responsibility for and a deep connection with the eight students who were killed, and he carried their memory with him for the rest of his life. In an allusion to a medrash, he referred to the eight students who died as the eight princes, the Sikhim. I quote his words from an emotional talk he gave on the 30th anniversary of the war at the military cemetery in Jerusalem. The eight princes, and with them the other students of the yeshiva who fell as soldiers in other battles and in other incidents, live within me. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the one who knows all thoughts and the recesses of one's heart, he knows how much their memory has been internalized in my personality and consciousness. For 30 years, I've tried my best to perpetuate their memories. In my writings, in my talks, in Sichot and in Shiurim, they are my rabbis and teachers, and my soul is intertwined with theirs. Nafshik, Shuram, Benafsham. The war was traumatic emotionally and personally for Rav Mital and theologically as well. Rav Mital believed that God revealed himself through historical events, particularly events that affected the Jewish people. As a firm believer that the return of the Jewish people to the land and the founding of the State of Israel marked the Atchalta of the Geula, the beginning of the redemption, how was the war to be understood? In the end, the Israeli army was victorious, but only after considerable loss of life and a frightening risk to the very existence of the state. In a passionate talk that he gave at the yeshiva not long after the war, at which I was privileged to be present, and which was later published and widely read by the religious Zionist community in Israel, Rav Mital insisted that the process of the Geula was inexorable, and once it had begun, there could be no retrogression. The war needed to be viewed from within a biblical and messianic perspective, and Rav Mital carefully explained how when viewed in that light, sense could be made of the war as a further step in an ongoing historical process of Geula. In the years subsequent to the Yom Kippur War, however, Rav Mital's perspective changed, and his certainty that we were living in the time of the Yitzchalt of the Geula weakened. He would often point out that Rav Kook was certain that the Geula had begun Another Mavasre Hagula, heralds of the redemption who lived in the 19th and early 20th centuries, were also certain. But despite their certainty of living in a time of Gula, none of them anticipated the Shoah. It is likely the traumatic experience of the loss of life in the Yom Kippur War, as well as in the First Lebanon War, affected his thinking, as did a growing preoccupation with the Shoah. The Rav Mital was also deeply troubled by his perception that Israeli society was not realizing the promise of redemption as conceived by Rav Kook in traditional sources. That a Jewish state in the land of Israel would attain a level of ethical and spiritual excellence that would serve as an example, a beacon of light to the nations of the world. Rav Mital's reconsideration 
of the advent of the Gula was accompanied by his reaction against the emergent ideology within religious Zionism, initiated by Rav Kook's son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda, and his students, some of whom were Rav Mital students as well, the founders of Gush Emunim, they established settlement of the land, Yeshuv Haaretz, as the highest religious priority and value. Rav Mital thought that this constituted a perversion of the thought of Rav Kook. Rav Mital pointed out that the commandment of settling the land of Israel, Yeshuv Haaretz, that was articulated by the Ramban, was referred to by Rav Kook only once in his voluminous writings. The importance of Musar, ethics, on the other hand, is a repeating theme that pervades Rav Kook's writings. Rav Mital maintained that there is a hierarchy of values, Suwam Arachim, that the safety and preservation of Am Yisrael came first, followed by Torah Yisrael and only then by Eris Yisrael. He was therefore in favor of territorial compromise for the sake of peace. He also recoiled from the exclusivist ideology of Gush Emunim that did not allow for other paths in serving God in the state. And the view advanced by several of its leaders that Yeshuv Haaretz overrode natural morality and ethics. He viewed that kind of absolutism as dangerous and foresaw its leading to acts of Jewish terrorism. Religious Zionism needed to be in the center of Israeli society, for only through its connection with the center could it exert influence upon the direction and character of Israeli society. It is difficult and messy to be within the center. It requires constant evaluation of priorities, the necessity to compromise in lesser values in order to advance higher ones. It's easier to maintain one's purity, but by by marginalizing itself and alienating the Israeli mainstream, the aspiration of religious Zionism to create an ethical and moral society that would be an example to the world, or Lagayim, would be defeated. In response to the growing extremism that he perceived in the religious Zionist movement, Rav Mital founded the centrist religious political party Maimad in 1988, which advanced moderate positions with respect to issues of religion and state, and most significantly supported territorial concessions for the sake of peace. In the ensuing elections, Maimad did not succeed in attracting sufficient votes to gain a seat in the Knesset. In the wake of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, Rav Mital was appointed as a minister in the government of Shimon Peres, was called upon by the Prime Minister to act to repair the breach within Israeli society between religious and secular Jews. After his service as minister, Rav Mital resumed his full-time duties as Rosh Hashiva. The 1996 elections, Imad was re-established under Rav Mital's leadership and ran again, this time as a faction within the Labor Party, and succeeded in gaining a seat in the Knesset and continued to have representation in the Knesset for a number of years. As he de-emphasized the notion of a Tchalt of the Geula, Rav Mital placed greater emphasis on the idea of the founding of the State of Israel as a historic Kiddush Hashem. Rav Mital understood the Holocaust as the greatest Chilu Hashem in history and the founding of the State of Israel as a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. He was therefore very sensitive to any acts of Kiddush Hashem that he saw taking place, and he was not quiet about it. When the Sabra and Shatila massacres took place, he called upon the Maftal, the religious Zionist party, to leave the government and was openly and sharply critical of the, of the religious Zionist rabbis and leaders who were against the commission of inquiry and who supported the expansion of the war with an assault on Beirut. When Boruch Goldstein murdered dozens of Arabs at the Maratha Machpelah, a public fast day was declared at the yeshiva and they lay in Vayachal Mincha. 
In the wake of the assassination of Yisak Rabin in 1995 by Yeshivat Hesder graduate and Bar-Ilan student, Rav Mital accepted the offer of Shimon Peres to be a minister in his government in order to help heal the terrible rift between Chilonim and Datiyim. The stands he took, his support to the peace agreement with Egypt, which included the evacuation of Yamit, his support to the Camp David Accords and the Oslo peace process, the founding of the Maimad Party in his association with the Labor Party, his view that the occupation had a corrupting effect on Israeli society, the yeshiva's vehement opposition to the cause by many religious Zionist rabbis and religious soldiers to refuse orders during the disengagement from Aza. These stands marginalized him within his own community of religious Zionists, of which he was a founding father, and he was subjected to condemnation and even abuse. But whenever asked about it, Rav Mital would insist that he did not care. For he was not afraid of rabbis or other people. He was only afraid of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. For Rav Mital, Emet, truth, was not a fixed, stable system that provides a definitive method of resolving conflicts among competing values, one that is always determinative of the proper course of action. He believed that that kind of truth was illusory. We are but humans living at a particular moment in a complex world, one in which it is not often always so clear what is the right and the good. Rav Mital's approach was to cultivate in himself and as an educator and leader in his students and followers a constellation of fundamental values and traits that provide the means for reaching sound decisions about important issues that realize the goal of the Avdachah Be'emet. These values and traits have at their foundation Emuna and Sirius Talmud Torah, but also include compassion, personal authenticity, recognition of others and other points of view, the importance of reason and practicality, the recognition of one's own limits, the need to lead and not dictate, and above all, the recognition of the complexity of human life in the service of God, and the consequent need to constantly review and check and even reverse one's own view and opinions. Rabbi approach may not be fashionable among contemporary Orthodox Jews for whom stable definitions and definitive systems are so attractive. Rav Mital contended that easy, sure, and fixed solutions to complex questions are deceptive and even dangerous. And most importantly, simplistic answers fail to meet the demand of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu expects of us. Speakers make my presentation much more, much shorter than I intended. I out of Oh, I won't say that. I won't say that. So, you will benefit. Um, I'm looking at the, the uh, my relationship with Rabbi Natal uh, from a, from a perspective of someone who was a student, but most recently, I didn't go to the yeshiva. I jokingly say, I don't know if I would have accepted the yeshiva. I came later on on the more senior program. But I was fortunate enough to be able to establish a Keshe with Rabbi Mital. Um, if there is any uh, Rebbe, in yeshiva Haaretz, no, it probably didn't happen. He was as close to a Rebbe 
in the yeshiva as the yeshiva had. He had the chain, he had the wit, he had the knowledge, he had the respect, and there was always a smile. That smile was infectious. Uh, as was mentioned, it allowed him to take positions and make statements strongly, which is what he did, but at the same time, everybody knew that it was coming from the heart and that there was a specialness about him. So I think understanding the man is very, very important. Mention how he had uh, been approached for the position. I heard him tell this story a number of times. What would happen when I came, since I was playing catch-up with all of the other rebane, I've been there for 20 years and what have you, I used to go to uh, as many shirim of his as possible, as many sichot as possible. Uh, when he had the boys over, I would come as well. So I heard a number of the different stories that, that are well known. So in his uh, bottom floor apartment in Givat Mordechai in Rechav Shachal, the people would go over for a Motzei Shabbat, and he would be open to questions. And invariably the question would be, how did the yeshiva start, and why did he start the yeshiva? And he mentioned, he would mention how he was learning in Yerushalayim, he had no intention of being a Rosh Hashiva. I believe uh, then students, uh, Ravi Olbenun, come over, Kanan Parat, and they'd come over to uh, ask him whether he would consider starting this new uh, yeshiva, and he questioned whether he'd be the right Rosh Hashiva, and he questioned why you're coming to him, and there were a number of reasons why he wasn't necessarily going to take it, and I think one of the two said, well, we got a little uppity, so to speak, and we said, if you don't do it, it won't happen, and how can you not do it, etc. And he was honest enough and realistic enough to say, they were right, and therefore I said yes. And I think that was very, very important, that he was an independent thinker, and it was known, and that he was a big Talmud Chachem was known. But he required somebody to start this Yeshiva Hester in the way that was described before. In part, he felt that uh, taking over the yeshiva and building the yeshiva would be a tribute to continue Torah in memory of the chaverim who were lost. It was mentioned. He would always speak about the fact that the Shoah was a big chil Hashem. A chil Hashem that to the world, the Jews looked helpless and they were, were decimated and killed. And he also mentioned and, and felt that the... Uh, the Melchemet uh, HaShichrur the, uh, was the first step of Kiddush Hashem to respond to that. It wasn't that one caused the other, and it wasn't that uh, the Medina was, you know, the, the, the various things were mentioned. It wasn't that he felt that politically. But he said, realistically, that was something that was very, very important. I mentioned before, he used to pride himself in saying that uh, he only had a third grade education. He said, Seen as a doctor, and I, you know, I went, as mentioned, I have a third grade education. I come from Pashida people. I think he said his father was a worker, his father was not a Rebbe or a Rav or anything like that. And he was a self made man, and he communicated that as well to the Talmudim. Mentioned before that there wasn't a feeling of you had to do this, if you don't do this, you're a failure. He recognized that things were different and difficult. He was fond of quoting, you know, ain't patentin. Okay? There's no <coughs> shtick. There's no simple solution. 
very often you have to work very hard to establish yourselves and to work on things, and you can't find a quick fix. Think, think the story of the joke he used to tell in the, well, in a second. Um, he used to um, say that if somebody comes over to you, you go to a rebel or you go to a miracle worker, and he'll, he'll be able to give you a lot of answers to a lot of things. But if you can ask them, and he offers to tell you the, uh, the secret and the quick path to Yerushalayim, and he's a quack. He says, there are no patentum. That comes with your work and with your efforts. And he spent his life talking about it and instilling it into the, the Talmudim of his yeshiva. He was very pro-Achtus, I remember. Uh, he didn't like the new, the new wave yeshiva dancing. He was very, again, I'm jumping from one thing to another, but trying to point out Rabbi Mital, the man. It used to bother him when he would talk about this. In other words, when the yeshiva danced, everybody danced in a circle. And he was very concerned about people who would be dancing alone. Sometimes you'll go to different places and you'll see everybody doing their own thing, all, all sorts of ways. And that used to bother him. And he spoke about it. Now, uh, to say, there is achdos. The challenge is achdos, and that's what we have to do. Um... When I came to the yeshiva, so I was involved as a start with the Chutznik program, and Rabbi Mital was already advanced in age, and I was told by different people that um, you know one of the things that would be very good is if the there'd be a, a constant exposure of the Rosh yeshiva to the boys in the program. And I remember asking him whether he would meet and uh, give special things to the, uh, to the Talmudim. And one or two other Rebbeim came over to me and told me, he's getting older, he's slowing down, don't give him too much work, don't bother him about this, don't bother him. And they went to ask certain of his friends, friends and colleagues, and they said, don't worry. That gives him strength. So I went and I asked them, and we set up Every week he'd, he'd meet with Shir Aleph or Shir Bet. Shir Aleph would be on a topic. He would start with a brief sicha or thought. And then he would answer questions. Now, the, the Shir, the whole thing was a half hour. So in that half hour, he could give a 15-minute, 20-minute thought on something, whether it's Torah or Rambam or what have you. Vakshava questions. Okay. And people, and you know, the guys were asking some of them with their broken Hebrew and not yet, not yet excellent Hebrew. He says, "That's okay. You can ask in English." <laughs> he was able to finish, and this is—he could knock off 15, 20 questions <laughs> in fifteen in fifteen minutes. He wasn't uh, long on the answers. He would speak his mind. He could be humorous. He could be funny. I remember certain things that he said. People would ask him. A common question would come up every year. And when, when they'd come up, the Shanalaf and Shanabet were together, the Shanabet guys would make faces because, oh, they've been through that. Very often it's interesting, I maintain that Shanabet students very often have amnesia because they forgot how they might have been as Shanalaf students. Therefore, they can't understand why certain questions could be asked. But one of the questions were, I mean, we're going back uh, to the States and we only have a certain amount of time and we, what should we learn? And what's better to learn, etc. 
Something he was known to say all the time was, you have to learn Masha Rotsa, Masha Liba Pick something that you want to learn and have to be He said it could be a little in the morning, a little at night, but there should be consistency. I think that gave the, the Talmidim a feeling of, of hope in terms of their fear of going back and not being able to do what they did. He told them that. When he told them, for example, also, when you go back, um, you know, you'll be in the world. Um, you know, when you open the newspaper, don't go to the sports first. Somebody said, don't go to the financial section first. He said, read the headlines. Read about what's going on in Eretz Yisrael. Know what Eretz Yisrael and Medina Yisrael's um, situation is. Then you can do other things as well. In other words, in a, in a nice way, he wanted everybody to know that we accept that Eretz Yisrael and Medina Yisrael is in our center. He told people to come back. It came discussions, and people would ask, "Should we come back? And what should we do? And how should we deal with our parents, etc., cetera, etc.?" Cetera. And I know one of the things he used to say was, "Eretz Yisrael, they have enough batlanim. If you're going to come back, come back with a plan. Come back to improve the situation in Israel." Um, a lot of people took that seriously for many, many years. Uh, but he said, "Don't just come with with no knowledge. Don't come with, with without a plan." Um, it's interesting, I heard this from his son, uh, and it wasn't mentioned, but uh, one of the, I used to say when we speak about the yeshiva, one of the miracles about the yeshiva is that you could have two rush yeshiva sharing position of rush yeshiva for 40 years. Neither one killed the other. Okay? Neither one got involved in politics. They bantered all the time. There was you know, quite a bit of give and take. But it was something, it was a sight to see. And it was a pleasure to watch the love and respect that they had for each other. That doesn't mean that Rav Mital wouldn't make a joke about the timing of Rav Lichtenstein's speaking on occasion, or that he's you know, the doctorate and he wasn't. But I was told by his son that when Rav Mital decided or wrote to Rav Lichtenstein offering him the position. See, he says, Rav Yoel, who's his son, who learned in the yeshiva, came over and saw what the letter was about. And basically, the letter uh, was written to Rabbi Lichtenstein, offering him to be the Rosh Yeshiva of the yeshiva. Basically, sole Rosh Yeshiva. And the uh, Rav Yoel turned to his father and said, Abba, called Zen? You're offering him everything? He was in shock. Like, how can you do that? So Mital says, we need somebody of his stature, and if that's what it takes, that's what's going to happen. That's not a so well-known story, uh, but I think it tells all about, uh, about Rav Mital. Now, he wrote the letter. I heard this from both him and Rav Lichtenstein. He wrote the letter on his stationery. His stationery is signed, or on top or on the bottom, Yehuda Amital. So Rav Lichtenstein gets this letter, from somebody, obviously, who must have been on the board, <coughs> offering him this position. And he responded, you know, Dear Mr. Amital. <laughs> and he came, and he came, and he, he was invited to see the yeshiva. When he got there, of course, he, he saw that it was the Rosh Yeshiva. Um, and he was interested in, in taking the position, but there was a tznai. The he made a condition. 
The condition was that he will not be Rosh Hashiva by himself. Uh, he will not do anything unless Rav Mital will do it as well. I think that's a beautiful thing. It lasted more than 40 years. I set a tone for the yeshiva that we hope you know, continues in terms of the friendship and the camaraderie of the Rashi yeshiva. But I think that's a very important thing. Um, he had the power and the desire to empower his Talmudim. Uh, he used to say, you know, it's your yeshiva. Seek the truth. Speak your mind. Reach out and do your thing. There's a story about the fact that there were sometimes public disagreements. And he encouraged Talmudim. In other words, he might, they might ask him something, but he was very happy that they would disagree with him if it meant that they were following their hearts and their minds. Again, as long as there's a qualification. I told the story about when the base bedroom was first built, uh, there weren't enough or any windows in the base medrash. And he said, no, you've got to go back, you've got to put in windows. Well, the windows are symbolic, but they're real as well. Amital is the, the Rosh Hashiva of the crying baby. Well, I'm sure many of you have heard that story. I won't tell the, I won't tell the entire story, but the bottom line was um, you have to be able to see out while people are looking in. You have to see the situation in the world and plan to be able to help in any way that you can. So he insisted the windows went into the base medrash. I'm not sure we can really see out of them. They're pretty high, but the concept was there. Um, the story of the crying baby about the Hasidish Rebbe who's sitting in a room and next door, in the next room is, I think, his son or grandson. And in the third room... There's a baby who wakes up, starts crying. The father didn't hear the baby. The father's busy learning. So the grandfather comes, coming from one room, through the middle room, to the third room, changes the baby, calms the baby down, puts the baby back. On the way back goes to his son, and he said, you know, why did you get the baby? So the son said, I was, uh, I was busy learning, so I didn't hear it. And uh, the river said, Anybody who um, is learning Torah so carefully and so intensely that he doesn't hear the cry of the baby, there's something wrong with his Torah. So Mithal was fond of saying that. He said, you have to listen to the cry, to the situation that's going on in the world, in the Jewish community. You've got to be involved. And Baruch Hashem, I think that's happened. I think you know there, there are thousands of program and thousands of Talmudim. I'm just coming from a Shabbaton in NYU New University of Talmidim, who were in various universities, secular universities, and Yeshiva University, and they come back, and there's a camaraderie, and they're doing things in many different places. I mentioned the, the Rashi Yeshiva, who came out of the Yeshiva, but the people in all walks of life who rallied to that call, and I think that's very, very important as well. Um, he was serious about Torah, he liked Kavod, but he didn't take himself too seriously. Meaning, he took Torah seriously. Uh, I think Rabbi Zach said he was small enough, big enough to see the situation being small, and I said he was small enough to see the situation that was big. He was able to see what had to be done, 
And he did it. And uh, you know, we're, we're grateful to him, eternally grateful to him. Uh, I think I have one more thing. Tell, I was told one or two stories, but I think uh, it's more than enough time. Um, I, I'll close with what he used to say uh, in terms of reaching out. He didn't like the term kiruv. He liked the term education. I like the term chizuk, which comes with the education. Um, Many of his Talmudim set up different institutions or organizations that reach out in Israeli society, in American society. One particular one is the Tair Workshop. Tair Workshop is a group of uh, performers who went to the yeshiva, and they put together a number of educational plays. They're funny, they're entertaining, and he was involved with helping them start. And I think they had quite a bit of success. And his derech was both to teach through example and not to be too hard on people. Let them establish their own. He told the story that uh, a non-religious couple came to him and said they're interested in pursuing a little bit about Yahadut. And what should they do? I think he told them to take, to do three mitzvahs. Okay? One mitzvah bein adam l'makom between man and God, they should do Shabbos. Uh, the second was and they take one thing that didn't make sense, but it was giving in to the fact that that's what God wants. Uh, subsequently, that family took those three things, they weren't put out, they weren't put down, and they continued moving based on Rav Mital's Terech I was very fortunate to get to know Rav Mital. I think he enjoyed the fact that I was always haunting him and giving him work. It was a funny thing, you know, giving him more things to do. I think he enjoyed it. He was very particular. He always came on time. It was Makbid. He wanted the Talmud to come on time. He always had things to say, and he always had the Rechizuk. I hope that this evening's uh, gathering has given us Chizuk to continue the legacy. And... Uh, recommend that uh, our lives should be growth in Yerush Shemayim and Avos Torah and to be involved in Chinuch of other people as well. There are some evenings which are informative, some which are entertaining, and some which feel important and you feel like you leave them changed. And I think that this was in that category. I was hoping that our panelists might have time for a few questions and our audience a few questions up their sleeves. Um, I'll break the ice. <laughs> um, it has to do with the Shoah, but it's not only directed to, uh, to David. Uh, he, what you said about Rav Amital saying that the relationship with God after the Shoah is no longer based on Hakarat HaTov. So he continued it, as I, as I recall, by saying that it's based on base, that it's impossible to live without God. It's sort of like, almost like attached at the hip, that 
in Brera, and I, I've never fully understood his avodah was did not evince the idea of it's just because I have to, but it had so much warmth and ahava to it. The, the philosophy and the life just don't seem to jive. Can you set me straight on that? Okay, but I don't know if I can set you straight necessarily. I think maybe I didn't phrase it you know, qualified exactly right, but I think it wasn't that only that he felt he had to be with God, but there was also a tremendous closeness that was I think established in the wake of the Holocaust between Israel um, and God. I is having that experience I talked about it, having seen God in God's hand. There was a tremendous cleaving there between him and Akadosh Baruch Hu, which he was talking about. Now, was there more to it than that? Besides Europe, I think you're right. You know, Tom himself would say he was not entirely consistent with uh, everything he said and everything he did. You know. He's making a point there about that the Hakarata Tov was just impossible for him. But nevertheless, this ecstatic communion with God, I think he's definitely, he definitely experienced. He would also talk about, I think, many times about this being in Yerushalayim, seeing, seeing the, the Navi's prophecy being fulfilled, and seeing children in the street playing. They gave him tremendous, you know, sense of, of you know, some sense of gratitude, obviously. So, that, no, not 100% consistency. In, in, in reference to that, it's, 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 it's possible that he, uh, I, I didn't know, but I would just, it, it, the concept of Akarata Tov, when you survived and other people didn't, it can, it can make you feel very guilty. And you're, yeah, oh, wonderful, I survived, but, but they didn't. So it's, it's very hard to say, oh, you know, base your, base your life on, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean he didn't have a trust at all.
when they were dancing and they were doing things together, there was a friendship, a friendship, a close friendship between the families of the field across the There was another yeshiva that was also looking at the IRA as well. Mm -hmm. It was known that he was interested in coming to as well. Who wants to Was there anything that a Talmud would do that would make Rav Amital disown him? How wide was the tent? How broad was the tent? I can tell the Rosalavichik would say that there were three things that the Talmud did that he was not considering the Talmud anymore. I'm supposed to know that also. <laughs> <laughs>